traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. On today's program, the ECB seems poised to end its quantitative easing, so is Europe's recovery now fully underway? Despite the glitz and glamour of its fashion showcase... I am so ready to rock that runway, you have no idea. ...is Victoria's Secret in danger of going out of fashion? And why do intelligent people fall for financial scams? Of course, I was in a real panic at that point because it became clear to me that I was at risk for all these purchases. Welcome to The Economist's Money Talks. On December the 13th, the European Central Bank is to hold its regular policy meeting. Back in June, it signalled that this would be when it would announce the end of its asset purchases, i.e. its quantitative easing programme, or QE. But since then, the euro area economy has slowed. Might that give the ECB pause? Rashina Shanbog, our Europe economics correspondent, has just been visiting the ECB in its lair in Frankfurt. Hello, Rashina. Hi, Simon. That's the question, really. Will it give it pause? Well, what we've seen is a slowing in the in euro area growth, as you said. But the ECB views some of that as temporary. Partly in Germany, we've seen the introduction of new emissions testing standards, and that brought car production to a halt. As a result, German GDP contracted in the third quarter. But that's a one-off effect. And so the ECB expects growth to recover a little towards the end of the year. In any case, it expected some slowdown as the economy neared its potential. So I don't think what we've seen so far gives it reason to alter course on policy. So how serious a slowdown are we talking about? In 2017, GDP expanded by 2.4%. In the third quarter of this year, it expanded by about 1.7%. So it's, a, so it's a reasonably significant slowdown, in particular because we've seen, as I mentioned, a contraction in Germany, and we've also seen a contraction in Italy in the third quarter. Well, I was going to ask you about Italy, because that's presumably the, the biggest cloud on the euro area economy's horizon, right? That how, how concerned are they about the potential for some sort of Italy crisis? Well, we've seen the economy contracting. We've also seen interest rates rising in Italy, both the borrowing costs for the government, but also borrowing costs for banks. And that's a worry for the ECB because it means that its expansionary monetary policy isn't feeding through to the Italian economy. I think that gives it cause for concern. But so far, we haven't seen spillovers from Italy to the rest of the euro area. And I think there might be a sense among some of the ECB that Italy's problems are self-inflicted. So I think until the Italian government perhaps reconsiders its fiscal position, the ECB might be reluctant to get involved and, and to help the Italians out. But there's not really a sign, is there, that the Italian government and the European Commission are close to resolving their disagreement over Italy's budget. So presumably the ECB might have to sit on its hands quite a long time while it's waiting for that to work itself out. 
Well, we did see some comments from the Italian Deputy Prime Minister last week that suggested that their planned budget deficit wasn't set in stone and it might be changed. And I think the markets took some reassurance from that. But we've seen the government make statements like this before. So it's difficult to know how how serious they are this time round. So yes, that might mean the ECB has to wait a while while Italy and the European Commission sort out their differences. Or it might be that the situation gets difficult enough that in three months time, it becomes clear that the ECB needs to act. That aside, its plan originally was to end quantitative easing at the end of this year and start raising interest rates sometime next year. That's still the programme? It's widely expected that that will still be the programme after the meeting on the 13th of December. The one thing we haven't talked about is inflation in the euro area. That's still extremely low compared with the ECB's target of inflation of just below 2%. Although we've seen headline inflation of around 2%, once you take off energy prices and food prices, so-called core inflation has been stuck at about 1% for the past few years. So that will be another question that the ECB will be considering. Their view is that we're starting to see wage increases, particularly in Germany, but in the rest of the euro area as well. So it's a matter of time until those wage increases start to feed through to price increases. And how much are they looking across the Atlantic at what the Fed is doing and its steady programme of, of rate increases? That's a good question. To be honest, I'm not sure. But I think there are some lessons that they could learn from the Fed's experience. The one thing that the Fed learnt was actually there was a lot more slack out there. There was a lot more spare capacity out there than they had originally thought. So actually, unemployment carried on falling for much, much longer. And that meant that there was room for the economy to carry on growing without putting pressure on inflation. And the ECB might want to to look across the Atlantic and learn some lessons from that. It means they might have a bit more room before they start tightening policy. So at least... So the the ECB is now expecting some level of inflation. That's right. They they do expect inflation to rise to I think about one point seven or one point eight percent in two years' time as a result of wage growth starting to pick up. Rashid thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. And if you want to read more stories from our correspondents and columnists, don't forget to subscribe to the Economist at economist.com/radiooffer. For 12 issues for $12. The Victoria's Secret Fashion Show is probably one of the most iconic events to happen on television every year. There's a lot of reasons why this show is different. Millions of Americans tuned in to see the annual Victoria's Secret Fashion Show over the weekend. It's emotional, it's exciting, it's beautiful. It's still America's largest lingerie brand and is associated with the world's top fashion models. But behind the lavish extravaganza of champagne and diamonds and skimpy knickers, is the business really in trouble? The share price has fallen by nearly half this year, and last month the chief executive stood down. Josie Delap is The Economist's retail correspondent. Hello, Josie. Hi, Simon. Now, this show has become quite controversial as not being appropriate for, as I read, corporate wokeness. And the chief marketing officer has been saying some politically fairly incorrect things as well. How much of Victoria's Secret problem is down to that sort of issue? The show is sort of the the big marketing point for the brand each year. It gets a lot of attention. It's where they show off, as you say, their, their top models. And it really is this 
sexy, diamond-studded, feather-bestrewn extravaganza of of slim women in scanty underwear. And that is the brand that Victoria's Secret has sold itself on. The show sort of has highlighted two problems, I think, for the brand. As you say, they've made some controversial comments. The marketing officer, when talking about whether they would include transgender models, said no, they didn't think that would work. And he's also talked about how including larger models doesn't work because he would say it's a fantasy and that's not what people want. And I think the the reason that this is a problem is that it highlights the way in which the brand has become rather outdated, which is reflected in that falling share price. And that presumably also reflects their market share. How's that doing? Absolutely. And they are the dominant underwear brand in the US. At one point, they had more than 33% of the market. That, over the last couple of years, has declined to about 24%. So it's been a real fall, even though they are still very much the biggest brand. And what are their competitors doing differently? Are they using larger size transgender models? Absolutely. So we've seen a a group of competitors coming up, often direct consumer brands who sell mostly online, who use a very diverse range of models, whether we're talking about women from different ethnicities, women of different sizes, pregnant women. And they're also prioritizing the idea of comfort And the idea that sexiness comes from women being confident and feeling comfortable in themselves rather than a sort of male fantasy of what sexiness might mean. And is there any sign that Victoria's Secret management are getting this, if you like? Are there any signs that they're going to change course or from the public remarks we've heard quoted, are they they digging in? Well, there aren't very many signs yet, although the resignation of the CEO does suggest that they might change. But When you're such a juggernaut, when you're such a big brand, it's quite hard to change direction. And when you have sold your brand so strongly on one particular version of underwear and of the concept of sexy. But they've got such scale. They've got shops in pretty much every mall across America. They've got a fairly big e-commerce market. So if they recognize that there's a different way of selling underwear, they could turn things around. Josie Tillap, thank you very much for joining us. Simon, thank you. Finally, you might think that falling for email scams, asking for help in wiring money, a tax rebate, or offering us a share of huge windfalls might be a thing of the past. But the digital landscape has become a minefield for all kinds of frauds. These scams have been dubbed the characteristic crimes of the 21st century and are becoming more and more difficult to detect. Charlie Wells, Deputy Snapchat Editor at The Economist, has been taking a look at why and how intelligent people seem to be falling for consumer fraud. The internet has brought ever greater scale and means of deception. Stanford researchers estimate that fraud costs Americans over $50 billion each year. Complaints to the Federal Trade Commission increased dramatically over the past few years. And certain sections of society seem to be prime targets. In America, baby boomers have more money and more control over their pensions than any previous generation. David Carter from Maryland is in his 60s. He has a master's degree in technology and is no fool. He's worked for many years in technology and computing, a very high-paying job. But he fell for a scam. After leaving a company he worked for in May, he was looking for genuine work. So he put his details up on an online jobs board. He wasn't looking for a get-rich-quick scheme. He was looking for a legitimate job. 
He was contacted by email by an online company who offered him a role. They had sent me an email supposedly from the HR department and said that I had been selected for an interview. They had advertised how much they were going to pay. And I was like, wow, that's pretty close to what I'm already making. You know, this is this would be cool to have a like a lower stress sort of a manual type job. And so finally I did respond to that. And they had legitimate paperwork. They had very detailed documents that describe the benefit plans and names of the benefit plans, the different options, how they would get me a company credit card and a computer and all that, very detailed documents. I did have some skepticism, um, but I did a lot of research, like three full days worth of research and just couldn't find anything that made it seem not legitimate. The job was to purchase various Apple products and then to ship these items and distribute them. And so the scam progressed. The next thing was they gave me an assignment, right? This is how we're going to operate in a probationary period. You're going to use your credit card. Your personal credit card. You're going to buy these things. Yeah, your personal credit card. You're going to buy these things, and we're going to reimburse you. Right. They never uh, asked for my my, um, social. They never asked for my uh, credit card numbers. In fact, they said, make sure you blank those out. We don't want you to have any risk here. Right. Um, and then the way that he explained it was, okay, you give us a credit card, we'll give you a payment um, ID, okay. and we'll pay your credit card to zero. Right. And so that was kind of the thing that made me let my guard down because that's what they actually did. They gave me this credit, this bank ID, I put it in my credit card, and they paid it down to zero. So $7,000 disappears off my debt. And with that $7,000, David carried out more work for them. He was buying Apple products on his credit card from different shops and outlets. David dutifully packaged them and meticulously sent out these items. He thought they were going around the world. But the promised checks and reimbursements didn't come. And that initial $7,000 reappeared on his credit card bill. Gradually, David realized he had been completely taken in. Of course, I was in a real panic at that point because it became clear to me that I was at risk for this, all these purchases for tens of thousands of dollars. I was like, you know what? I am done until I see a card from you guys to use. This is over. I'm not spend, I'm not going to buy anymore. You know, and then, then after I said that, I never heard from the guy again. Couldn't reach him, of course. Um, and here comes the rest of the payments back on my card, right? The company website disappeared. It became impossible to contact them, and David was left with a debt of $80,000. All that was subject to the credit card company's interest rate. Nathan Sprang is an associate professor at McGill University in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery. He's studied why seemingly savvy people, like David, still fall for fraud like this. Any individual can really be subject to fraud. Older adults may be particularly vulnerable due to age-related changes to their brain. By and large, this has been treated mostly as a sociological issue. However, I think that it is appropriate now to be treating vulnerability to fraud as a biomedical problem because we know that the human brain atrophies over the decades of life and that there's changes in the way older adult cognition is implemented. So with changes in advancing age, there's a tendency to bias information processing towards the positive and to diminish the negative potential repercussions of one's own behavior or how we read the environment. 
Professor Spreng believes that newer technology plays a part in increasing the vulnerability of older people. As we get older, we tend to rely more upon the knowledge that we have. We lean towards our prior experiences to help guide us in our behavior. With these new financial instruments and some of the complexities of technology, this poses a specific challenge for older adults who didn't necessarily grow up with this kind of technology. It's difficult for anyone to keep up with, but it's particularly difficult for some older adults. The lack of a strong social network makes it such that older adults don't have someone else to bounce these ideas off of, to say, do you think this is a good idea? Even a single layer of support would often be sufficient to really verify whether or not a certain decision is going to result in financial exploitation. David thinks that his credit card company should bear some of the responsibility over the scheme that duped him. And he has two pieces of advice for others to avoid being a fraud victim. Don't fall for somebody saying they've got a job for you, we're going to hire you without going through you know, the whole interview process. And the other thing is anything involving your credit card. Absolutely anything involving your credit card, the answer is no. And that report was by Charlie Wells. Don't forget you can make sure you don't miss one episode of Money Talks by subscribing to our podcast. But that's all for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.